The views and opinions expressed on this show are purely the views and opinions of the person who made them and do not necessarily reflect or agree with those of the show's commercial sponsors, its radio station affiliates, or Internet broadcast platforms. As the restriction on our God-given right to free speech manifests itself throughout the world, we are inspired by Jesus Christ's immortal words, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And we reserve the rights to all our words. Thank you, and now enjoy the show. To learn the rules over you, simply find out that you are not allowed to criticise. You are listening to ACH, I'm Andy, your host. Today is Thursday, so it's time for the weekly visit of our good friend Dr Peter Hammonds. Let's bring him up right now. Peter, are you with us? I am indeed. Thank you so much, Andrew. Thank you so much, Peter. And folks, this is going to be part nine. This is the aftermath. It is the concluding part of the real story behind the bad war by MS King. Uh, I'm quite happy to go on to further shows if need be. But Peter and I have already sorted out a topic for the next two weeks, which I'm sure you will find interesting. I certainly will. So where would you like to start us off today with part nine of the bad war, Peter? Well, Andrew, um, as you know, my father fought all six years of the Second World War in the Royal Artillery as a bombardier in North Africa and Italy, mostly under uh, Field Marshal Montgomery. And uh, uh, he didn't want to talk about the war much. He was often very uneasy about the way things were depicted on TV. He dismissed American films and Second World War as rubbish. It wasn't like that. And... uh, he expressed a lot of respect for his enemy, uh, specifically the Africa Corps under Erwin Rommel, and um, was outraged at how the German enemy that he respected uh, had been um, dismissed and vilified as as really evil, atrocity performing people. He said they were gentlemen. Uh, he even used the word Christian gentlemen and uh, honorable enemy, and um, that there were no atrocities in North African campaign. Uh, Interesting because as a member of the Moths, the Memorial Order of the Tin Hat, I've frequently been in meetings uh, over the years. I've met people who fought in the First World War, in the Second World War, lots on all sides. (laughs) I've met people who were in the Russian army, uh, the Romanian and uh, Hungarian, uh, Lithuanian resistance forces all over the place. So uh, I've met many people uh, Americans, French, German, Dutch, and so on, involved in, in the wars. And uh, their versions, the first-hand versions, never tallied with the uh, official narrative that we get from Hollywood and from our school textbooks. So it's so refreshing to have someone like M.S. King, who's done the research, and he's published in a book, The Bad War, The Truth, never taught about World War II, and he's got never involved there. And he really has given us um, a whole lot of insights of facts, inconvenient facts that don't fit the narrative that are jarring um, 
about what happened in the war. Well, now in this last section, we deal with the aftermath of the war. And I must admit, I got the impression growing up from the films and the books that we came across that the Allies behaved impeccably and that there was no atrocities and no abuse of prisoners of war. Uh, we just got the impression that in 1945, uh, everyone treated one another with decency. Far from it. Um, as we see here in Section 7, um, 1945 to 1950, the horrible aftermath of World War II, the last section of Ms. King's book, The Bad War. And uh, he, he uh, puts in here a report from John Eisenhower, the son of, uh, of the General Eisenhower, and also an aide to General Eisenhower. And he said, the striking aspect of our visit was the lavish reception the Russians gave the commander of a foreign nation's army. Georgi Zukov, General Eisenhower's Soviet counterpart in Berlin met us at Tempelhof Airport for the flight to Moscow in Ike's C-54 four-engine aircraft. Zhukov, as the official host, was the soul of hospitality and congeniality. By this time, the two commands had become friends, as close of friends as public life permits. In Moscow, our party first attended a parade. Significantly, my father was invited to undergo a four-hour ordeal atop Vladimir Lenin's tomb with Zhukov and Stalin. He was, I later learned, the first foreigner ever to be accorded that honor. One evening, the entire party was entertained at dinner with Stalin himself officiating. So that John Eisenhower, the son and aide of uh, Ike, or um, <laughs> um, General, later uh, President Eisenhower, who was the first foreigner ever accorded the honor to stand atop Lenin's tomb with the full Politburo of the Soviet Union as a guest of Stalin and being hosted particularly by Zhukov. And uh, that's kind of an interesting quote, never seen anywhere else by myself. And then he's got some horrible pictures of German women uh, who are in a hideous state after having been raped on Stalin's orders and uh, it's got pictures of smiling Eisenhower with Uncle Joe, they called this brutal dictator, the most vicious dictator with the Guinness Book of Records, worst mass murder in the history of the world before Mao Zedong took his place, um, uh, increasing the numbers of people murdered. Under uh, Stalin, at least 36 million people were murdered, his own people, by, by him. And to think that he was called Uncle Joe by Eisenhower and FDR and Truman. Well, um, interesting to also see the cover of Time magazine with Zhukov as man of the year. There's, with a big red star behind him, Time magazine, or I call it Slime magazine, actually putting this bloody Zhukov who oversaw the mass rape of millions of German women and the destruction of Berlin in the most hideous way. So then you've got the final death count of World War II and its aftermath uh, in this seventh section of uh, the Bad War. 40 million killed, of which Americans were 420,000, much of those on the Pacific front, of course. British killed, something in the region of 400,000. Germans up to 15 million Germans killed in the war. Now, I mean, how many people know that? Italians, 450,000. French, 500,000. Much of that by the Allies themselves and the liberation by bombing France, as we learned. Japanese, 3 million died. Many of those during the Allied air attacks, of course. 
Russians killed during the war 5 million officially, 7 million disappeared or killed afterwards, most likely at the hands of Joseph Stalin himself. And so the normal official Soviet figure of 20 million dead, uh, Mike King says, cannot be substantiated, does not differentiate between the war dead and Stalin's victims. And that's actually an important point, that most of the Russians killed during the Second World War were actually killed by Stalin. And that, of course, uh, it's intriguing the way how many of these statistics on death tolls in the Second World War that are attributed to Hitler were actually people killed by the Allies, you know, such as the Polish officers at Katan Forest Massacre, most famously, where a Soviet atrocity attributed to the Germans. And so in many times putting the death tolls together, they've added the death toll of the French who died in the war, uh, the French who died at the hands of Allied bombings. And the Germans killed, they ignore the civilians killed normally, and especially those killed after the war, and the German soldiers killed in Eisenhower's camps, uh, as in uh, other losses, where over 1.1 million German soldiers, prisoners of wars, were, were forced to starve to death uh, in these uh, Rhineland meadow camps, where literally they were just behind barbed wire with no uh, facilities, no cover, no uh, protection from the elements, nothing provided, not even food, where they were just to starve to death. And they were shot when they tried to escape, and people who were shot trying to get water from the Rhine River, and civilians shot for trying to bring food to them uh, through the barbed wire and so on. What's also put here in the final death count of World War II is the 25,000 American prisoners of war who were prisoners of war in German camps, but in areas liberated by the Soviet Red Army. And they weren't returned to the West. The West, they were just incorporated into Stalin's gulags in the East to work in Arctic hellholes of Siberia as slaves until their lives were snuffed. Hundreds were uh, executed by the NKVD. Uh, many thousands were interrogated first for everything they were worth before being shot in the back of the head. And these have been testified of, and, and we've spoken about them when we were dealing with America's uh, the real history behind America's betrayal of Afghanistan and touched on a whole lot of the American prisoners of war that they've betrayed after the First World War, Second World War, Korean War, Vietnam War, and that America's got a, a history of abandoning and betraying their own soldiers. An American ally of the Soviet Union, the so-called liberated American POWs, most of them never saw freedom. They just went from a prison camp in Germany to a slave labor camp in the Siberian Arctic hellholes under the NKVD of Stalin and were wiped out there, many tortured to death for what information could be uh, dragged out of them. And so uh, we have here interesting pictures, uh, such as the fighting Sullivans, the five brothers of Iowa who all died when their ship was sunk in 1942. Uh, there's uh, huge amounts of uh, tragedy in the Second World War, people who died as M.S. King says, actually for nothing when you think about it. And M.S. King puts here that 20% of the German population was wiped out in the aftermath of the war. And uh, this most people are not aware of. So Eisenhower and Hollywood producers then issued a fake Holocaust atrocity film. American audiences were horrified by newsreel footage of Nazi concentration camps and one full-length film authorized by General Heisnose, which still circulates to this day, despite having been exposed as being fabricated, shows homicidal gas chambers at Dachau, which 
has since been acknowledged was no gas chamber at all, and that there was no gas chamber in Dachau, and never was, and that the one they were showing to the tourist was fabricated. The shrunken, shrunken heads of inmates, which was proven to be false, the lampshades that were supposedly made from human skin at the request of the camp commandant's life, which is now not even believed in the Holocaust Museum in Israel. Uh, German civilians were rounded up and forced to watch these fake props or dragged through, uh, walked through these camps and the victims of either Allied bombings or who had died of typhus and horrible um, emaciated uh, typhus-ridden corpses. They were forced to go through there and forced women uh, were brought from the homes and forced to carry these bodies and put them into uh, the, the mass graves, which British uh, bulldozer pilot, um, soldiers driving bulldozers uh, literally uh, poured in the dirt on top of them. And yet these films were were put together in such a way that the impression given was that these people had died of gassings, whereas, in fact, uh, looking through it all since, they died of starvation because of Allied bombings, they died of typhus uh, because of all the medical factories having been bombed and the supply chain, the bridges, the railways, the roads, the harbours having been destroyed. And it's obviously towards the end of the war, there were people starving everywhere in Germany, just as we had people starving in British concentration camps in the South African Anglo-Boer War, 1899-1902. But nobody suggested gas chambers made people look like they were uh, skin and bones. And so now even Jewish scholars of the Holocaust openly admit that the shrunken heads were fakes, the lampshades were made of goat leather, there never were any homicidal gassings at Dachau. And, uh, but by the time these were admitted as hoaxes 40 years later, the damage to the German reputation had been done. Uh, so uh, Eisner was very cruel to take people, including children, uh, through these camps and uh, absolutely horrify them with sights of mass deaths and killings, which what they made out was the policy of the people running the camps, not that the International Red Cross had ever observed such. They found the camps being run efficiently throughout the war, and the International Committee of the Red Cross had full access to all of these camps, and never did they uh, report any such atrocities. So uh, there was um, Albert G. Rosenberg, a Jewish officer serving in Eisenhower's psychological warfare unit, who produced these shrunken head hoaxes. And uh, Ilse Koch, who is a, a German um, warden at one of these camps, was sentenced to life in prison for owning a human lampshade, which actually was made of goat's leather. And she committed suicide in 1967, um, having been demonized for something which later was admitted to be a hoax. World War II in Europe may have officially ended in 1945, but the period of anarchy and civil war which followed lasted for five more years. Across Europe, from 1945 to 1950, Europe became a savage continent. There were entire landscapes ravaged, entire cities ruined, millions of people homeless. Institutions like the police, the media, transport, local and national government, gone or badly shattered. Crime rates soared, economies collapsed. Hungry women and girls were forced into prostitution. The European population hovered on the brink of starvation. And this is covered also in other uh, crimes and mercies uh, by the author of Other Losses. And uh, this was absolutely horrific. Communists, liberals, and Jews imposed a cruel vengeance upon their helpless prey, says 
MS King. German civilians and the anti-communist allies everywhere were rounded up, raped, sodomized, drowned in cesspools, tortured, genitally mutilated, burned alive, and executed. And uh, if anyone hasn't yet read or uh, heard the Hellstorm um, expose of this, um, you will have um, a lot of horror to see what really happened. The internment camps were reopened and filled with anti-communists and Germans. And after being starved to death, photos of many of these prisoners, starved by the communists, were passed off as victims of Hitler's Holocaust, even though they were, in fact, probably followers of Hitler who had been massacred since and afterwards in some of these same camps. Massacres, civil wars followed in Greece, Yugoslavia, Poland, parts of Italy, France, in one of the greatest acts of ethnic cleansing the world has ever seen, tens of millions of people were expelled from their ancestral homelands as Allied occupiers looked the other way. Millions of Poles were moved out of areas that had been historically theirs, and that was given to Russia. Millions of Germans were moved out of what had been historically German to reaccommodate many of those Poles who had been expelled from what now was uh, taken over by Russia. Same thing happened with Romania and Hungary. Huge amounts of territories were, were sliced and stolen, and uh, of the ethnic cleansing, the killing of millions of ethnic Germans who'd lived throughout Central and Eastern Europe, uh, just absolutely beyond comprehension. And there was a book published called Savage Continent by Keith Lowe, published in 2012, described the horrors of post-war months and years in gruesome detail. So the picture of happy people celebrating in Trafalgar Square and uh, New York's Times Square, uh, uh, giving the impression that all the fighting's over, uh, you know, everyone now lived happily ever after, the good guys won and so on. Well, that turned out to be fake and propaganda because uh, the worst was still ahead in many ways for many people. As the Red Army rolled into Germany, Stalin's chief propagandist, Ilya Ehrenberg, encouraged the soldiers to rape and kill German women of all ages everywhere. So quoting from this official printed, uh, printed by the millions leaflet sent to everyone in the Red Army, kill, kill. The German race is evil. No one amongst the living, not even amongst the unborn, is but evil. Follow the precepts of Stalin. Stamp out the fascist beast once and for all in its lair. Use force. Break the racial pride of the German woman. Take them as your lawful booty. Kill as you storm onward. Kill, you gallant soldiers of the Red Army. And that's all a quote from Ilya Ehrenberg, uh, a chief propagandist for Stalin, and the Red Army did this. The orgy of violence and rape one of the ghastliest episodes in human history, two million German women and girls ranging in age from eight to 80, gang raped, sodomized, beaten, often in view of their children or family members. Many were deliberately penetrated with bayonets, broken glass and orgies of drunken violence. Even the terrified women who fled to churches and hospitals were hunted down and gang raped. Nuns, young girls, elderly women were infected with venereal diseases by these absolute savages. In many cases, their breasts were cut off. Victims are set in fire after being raped. The notable offenders were mainly the Jewish NKVD rearguard troops and the Mongoloid troops of the Asiatic republics of the far eastern reaches of the Soviet Union. And rather than submit to this horror, many thousands of German women committed suicide. And there's some pictures of uh, the German women literally sitting in park benches having shot themselves uh, rather than uh, fall into the hands of the Red Army. 
and one can understand that. Eisenhower, Truman, and the Zionist press, Emma's King said, were fully aware of this monstrous horror that the man they referred to affectionately as Uncle Joe was inflicting upon these poor civilians. And the woman was snatched from the streets and gang raped, massacred. The abuses uh, all over is just horrific. General George Patton said, Berlin gave me the blues. We have destroyed a good race. We're about to replace them with Mongolian savages. After The first week after they took Berlin, all the women who ran were shot, and those who did not were raped. I could have taken Berlin instead of the Soviets had I been allowed to. But he was denied the fuel, and his tanks literally came to a standstill because FDR and Churchill had promised Stalin that he would have Berlin and he would have the whole of Eastern Europe. And, of course, the Allies were providing the weaponry, the technology, the fuel, the bullets, the bombs, and everything else to enable, right down to the boots and buttons, uh, the billions and billions of dollars of high-tech weaponry and practical things that the West poured into the Soviet Union to enable the Soviet Union to survive Operation Barbarossa and then to finally turn the tide against Germany because of their unlimited supply of manpower and the unlimited amount of technology and uh, weaponry provided from the United States and Canada and Britain with South African gold funding it, thanks to General Smuts, uh, without any authorization from the South African uh, parliament or people. Uh, so more than a year after the German surrender, Eisenhower still hold millions of German prisoners of war. Now, bearing in mind that when Germany took Norway and Netherlands, uh, Belgium and France, they immediately released all the soldiers they'd captured uh, within weeks of taking these countries, the prisoners were all freed. Same thing in Poland. And it, uh, Germany didn't keep prisoners uh, prisoners the whole way through the war of countries that they had taken or conquered. Um, obviously, it was different with countries that were still at war with, such as Britain and America. Um, but these prisoners were generally treated pretty well. But on this occasion, uh, the uh, General Eisenhower's orders were that these German prisoners of war would be reassigned to disarmed enemy forces, DEFs, and put under another column called other losses, and not allowing the Red Cross access to them, even though the International Red Cross had had full access to all German prison camps and all concentration camps and allied POWs in German territories during the war. They were not allowed to bring in the food or any of the parcels or anything else, medicines that they were wanting to into these camps because the Americans under Eisenhower forbade the Red Cross or any civilians or any churches or any groups to bring anything to these prisoners. Any American guard who attempted to help the prisoners faced disciplinary action. German civilians bringing food and blankets to the men were shot by the guards. And so disease, exposure, hunger took their toll and the German losses mounted and so between 1.1 million and 1.5 million German prisoners died slow, torturous deaths in that hideous winter following the surrender in 1945. And other losses by James Bach, very well researched, supported by shocking photos. And uh, the atrocities, everyone knows what was done, supposedly done by the Germans in the Second World War. Virtually nobody knows what was done to the Germans during and after the Second World War, even years later. Well, between 1945 and 1950, Joseph Stalin murdered another million German prisoners of war. It's an incredible fact that this could be the only time in history when more prisoners of war died off, more soldiers died after the war than died in the war. 
And so vastly more German soldiers, despite having fought on three or four fronts throughout six years um, against all odds, the German army lost more men as prisoners of war after the war than they lost during the war in combat. And that's a staggering thought. And so Germans were often summarily executed, paraded like animals, and worked to death in Siberia so that only a small fraction of the uh, German soldiers who had uh, surrendered to the Soviets uh, ever returned home alive. And uh, they were paraded through the streets. Uh, they were marched to the infamous gulags. Many died on the long march. Many died in the slave camps. A very small minority returned. The uh, prisoners of war from Germany killed or worked to death in captivity are estimated to be up to one million people, according to M.S. King's book and the sources he's quoting here. So after the war, the area of Germany historically known as Prussia ceased to exist. Now, Prussia was the ally of Great Britain for many, many, many years uh, in the Seven Years' War and uh, uh, many other wars in, in the uh, French Napoleonic Wars. Prussia was the ally. In fact, was the Prussian troops under Marshal Blücher who saved the day for Wellington's forces at the Battle of Waterloo in, 19, uh, in 1815. Uh, but now Prussia just wiped out, handed over to Poland or the Soviet Union. Seven million Germans in Prussia expelled from the homes, forced to walk west with what pitiful few possessions they could carry. Still more German territory given to Soviet-occupied Czechoslovakia. Three million Germans from the Sudetenland of Czechoslovakia expelled and the homes just expropriated without compensation. The refugees on the roads were vulnerable. They were attacked and raped by the Red Army and by Jewish and communist gangs. Two million more died during the forced migrations, and another half a million more were interned in Soviet labor camps. These are civilians we're talking about now. Displaced Jews were given preference in seizing the stolen homes from the German refugees. And as part of the psychological reprogramming efforts known as denazification, the German people were deliberately, systematically subject to hunger, mental trauma, homelessness, and starving German women to force them to sell their bodies to American soldiers in exchange for some cans of food became normal. To add insult to injury, the old debt payments originating from post-World War I Treaty of Versailles were reinstituted in 1948 and not paid off till 2010. So 10 million Germans expelled from the homes. Many died in Long March. Hellstorm by Thomas Goodrich tells the story of what was done to the Germans from 1944 to 1947 extremely hard to read, and um, uh, but very factual and staggering. General Eisenhower needed General Patton in order to win the war, but the outspoken Patton complained openly about his halt orders, which stopped him from liberating Eastern Europe before the Soviets could get there. And he also ignored Ike's orders to continue holding German prisoners after war, and Patton was inclined to release them. And so General Patton urged his superiors to allow his army to evict the Soviets from Europe. In a letter to his wife, he expressed his disgust over the cruel extermination of the German people, the mass rapes of the Soviet army, the Red Army, what he called the Jewish communist efforts to advance Soviet influence. And so Patton's insubordination caused Ike to remove him from command. Now, bear in mind, Ike was much the junior of Patton. Ike had never been involved in battle. Eisenhower probably never heard a shot fired in anger. And uh, Eisenhower is overruling America's greatest combat general, frontline general. And um, 
relieved them of command uh, because of uh, Patton's outspoken opposition to the uh, brutality of the occupation. Well, when Patton uh, resigned his commission, didn't retire, which he could have, but he chose to resign his commission, and he said in letters to his wife and daughters that he planned to uh, open up a new front uh, in America against a real enemy, those SOBs in Washington, D.C., uh, to quote Patton's uh, way of putting things. Well, he then had a very low-impact auto accident near Mannheim in Germany and died in hospital two weeks later, evidently the victim of an assassination order issued by Ike or higher. And there's uh, a lot on that, and we've dealt with the real story of the assassination of George Patton in a previous program. And there's books out on it too. Well, Operation Keelhaul. Ike delivered millions of Russian prisoners of war and Ukrainians and East European refugees into Stalin's hands. It was hideous. Uh, Operation Keelhaul, well named after the old naval punishment of uh, taking a person uh, with a rope around him and dragging him under the hull of the ship where often much of their back was ripped open. Most of them didn't even survive many times. They drowned on the way through. But from the front of the ship underwater till the back and uh, with the barnacles and so on on the uh, underside of the ship, it would normally rip them up uh, while keelhauling them. So keelhauling is one of the most severe punishments in the Royal Navy. And so to speak about this as Operation Keelhaul was horribly appropriate. And so something like 3 million Russian prisoners of war and their family members, including mothers holding babies, were forced at gunpoint and bayonet point into trains and trucks to bring them to the Soviet executioners. This uh, was sealed for 30 years, totally top secret, not allowed to talk about it. And uh, of course, it's out now. One of the first books I ever read that opened my eyes to the other side of the war. as only a 15-year-old boy in Rhodesia, and I read The Last Secret about Operation Keelhaul. And I was stunned and shocked and disgusted. I thought our side were the good guys. I had no idea that we had people who could treat civilians even, and prisoners of war, uh, potential allies, uh, anti-communists in such a savage way. And uh, in separate operations, anti-communist refugee families that actually followed their German protectors, they retreated from Germany, were shipped back to Uncle Joe and subjected to tortures, rapes, and murders. And Stalin held on to 25,000 American prisoners of war and 30,000 British prisoners of war, sending them to Siberian gulags, even summarily executing many. Churchill and Truman were aware of their missing prisoners of war, but said nothing, obviously respecting Stalin more than their own soldiers. And uh, this, there's some horrific pictures here of um, uh, the uh, treatment of so many of these people terrified Russian prisoners of war uh, and uh, people who had um, fought to try and liberate Russia, Ukrainians and others, uh, being abused and uh, uh, beaten by people before being shipped off to Soviet Union. The treatment that got over there is just beyond comprehension. Well, to just show that hypocrisy knows no bounds, um, Winston Churchill then made a speech in 1946, March the 5th, 1946, that an iron curtain has fallen over Europe, uh, from Stettin in the north to Trieste in the south, and all the great capitals of Europe are now lying behind uh, 
that um, Iron Curtain, Warsaw, Berlin, Prague, Vienna, Budapest, Belgrade, Bucharest, and Sophie, famous cities uh, in what I must now call the Soviet sphere. Well, he had done so much to bring that about. Uh, he was a key party to the Yalta betrayal of Eastern Europe and the Allies. In fact, uh, there's strong suspicion amongst the Poles to this day that as Churchill ordered the assassination of General Sikorsky, the head of the Polish uh, government in exile, Polish armed forces, um, on the 4th of July, 1943 in Gibraltar. And so uh, to have somebody uh, bemoaning uh, the Iron Curtain descending over Europe, dividing Europe, when he had actually been a key architect of that at the Yalta Agreement and uh, just staggering. So during the 1943 Tehran Conference, Joseph Stalin had proposed executing 50,000 German staff officers off the war. And Franklin Delano Roosevelt joked that 49,000 will do. The murderous allies, FDR uh, and Stalin, unfortunately, being uh, along with them, were all in agreement that trials of Germany's top leaders would take place after the war. And these were sh show trials very much modeled on Stalin's show trials in the 1930s, where he got rid of a lot of his allies and rivals, many of them heroes of the revolution and top leaders of the Communist Party Politburo, and he just had them um, all show trialed first before uh, declaring themselves guilty and pleading for the death penalty to be brought upon themselves, which can only be done in a communist country. Uh, but the Nuremberg tribunals, um, absolutely hor horrific, and uh, there were many, of course, allied leaders, uh, generals and others like Montgomery, who were outraged, shocked, disgusted, and who condemned this as a complete uh, farce and charade and uh, um, unacceptable, unprecedented in the history of warfare. Many allies, um, such as my father, felt that the Nuremberg trials were an, a betrayal of the uh, allied forces who thought that they were fighting for justice and freedom and Western civilization and even Christian civilization. And instead, it seemed that they were mostly advancing Soviet communism. And so the eight-panel tribunal had two judges each from the United States, United Kingdom, Soviet Union, and France. To have Soviet Union judges <laughs> judging people for war crimes when everybody in the courtroom knew the Soviet Union was guilty of committing the worst human rights abuses, the greatest massacres in the history of the world. So honorable German leaders were condemned as war criminals, but governments that had carried out saturation bombings, targeting of civilians, Hamburg, Dresden, Tokyo fire bombings, sinking of ships like the Willem Gustloff hospital ship uh, cram crammed with refugees and the Goya, and then forcing the betrayal of millions of civilians and refugees and prisoners of war uh, into the hands of the NKVD and who oversaw the starvation murders of over one and a half million German prisoners of war, the murders of the Polish officer corps at the Katan Forest, the mass raping of millions of German women, the dropping of atomic bombs. <laughs> it, it, to think that they could be sitting in judgment on other people and calling them war criminals is just beyond comprehension. Hundreds of prominent American and European political figures, writers, artists, military men, including a young John F. Kennedy, condemned the trials. Of the accused, 11 would hang, uh, including the peace, uh, and seven, including the peacemaking parachutist Rudolf Hess, receiving long or life prison sentences. Hermann Goering treated his 
executioners by taking prisoners jail. Uh, it's uh, and Hermann Göring had been the head of the Luftwaffe, and he had been a German air ace in von Richthofen's um, circus, so-called, in the First World War, uh, an air ace, and um, he's been demonized a lot in the media. But simple murder wasn't enough. The Allied executioners decided not to shoot them in a firing squad, which would be normal military procedure, but to use a short drop instead of a neck-breaking long drop hanging. So this is a, a criminal's death, and... Uh, also, by having the short drop instead of the long drop, they ensured that the victims suffered a longer death due to strangulation. And uh, they also made the trapdoors too small. Several of the men suffered bleeding head injuries when they hit the sides of the trapdoor while falling. And the bodies were cremated and ashes scattered over the river, denying the families even the right of burial. Uh, so this was something that was pretty unprecedented in the annals of war to treat a defeated enemy uh, in this way. And uh, with Britain tired and weakened in debt from the war, opportunistic Zionists now escalate the attacks upon the British soldiers protecting Palestine. So the British, who had taken Palestine specifically to give it to the Zionists after the First World Wars, as part of the Balfour Declaration, they now were uh, targets for bombings. And there's the King David Hotel bombing in 1946, where Jewish terrorists targeted the British, killing 91 people and blowing up this King David Hotel. And, and one of the people involved in that became a prime minister in uh, uh, Israel uh, later. That's Mechem Begin. And in 1948, after the three allied powers of the war recognized the new state of Israel, the massacre at Deir Yassin targeted civilians, Palestinian villagers um, at in order to scare the rest from the villages. And so these terrorist attacks were done um, by what became the future leadership of Israel right up to their Prime Minister and Nobel Peace Prize winner, Meshem Begin. Well, because of sympathy gained from Hollywood promotion of the six million Jewish dead in gas chambers in the Second World War, Israel's dispossession of the Palestinians and displacement of the Palestinians in their homeland was tolerated, or at least by most Westerners, although Middle East Arabs never did accept that. So interesting that despite Britain giving Israel to uh, the Jewish Zionists' uh, goals, they still had their soldiers targeted for terror bombings, and some of their men kidnapped and tortured in horrific ways. Uh, so in fact, parcel bombs and a bombing of hotels and so on really was pioneered by these Ergen terror gangs uh, led by Begin. The Marshall Plan was a massive United States foreign aid scheme for post-war Western Europe. The globalists used every propaganda trick in the book to cleverly sell this expensive scheme to the US Senate, which was quite anti-communist, and to a very gullible American public. So the Marshall scam, is the way King puts it, was a hard-sold economic recovery program needed to prevent nations from falling to communism, which sounded like a noble goal. But the poison pill of the Marshall scam was the subgroup it created in order to administer its aid package, the Organization for European Economic Cooperation, or uh, OIC, uh, which later became the European Common Market, and which today has become the socialist single currency European Union, or EU. 
So they used reverse psychology to present the globalist communist plan as an anti-communist plan that Stalin apparently opposed, but in fact he didn't. And so years before the EU was finalized, the Marshall Plan propaganda posters were already selling an idea of a united Europe as they show in the posters and pictures here in the book. So from the days of the post-war denazification of Germany throughout 45 years communist rule over East Germany and the 70 US uh, domination of United, uh, 70 years of US domination of United Germany that continues to this day, perhaps the greatest crime of all is the psychological rape of three subsequent generations of Germans. From an early age, German school children are taught to hate the great accomplishments of previous generations, to wallow in self-loathing, and the most pathetic Germans today fervently believe all the lies told about Nazi Germany, uh, or they could find themselves locked up uh, for uh, being Nazis or Nazi sympathizers, or revisionists, or someone who, if they don't believe everything told to them, uh, they can be hunted down and imprisoned, and tens of thousands of Germans Last I heard, 50,000 Germans, including scientists, historians, biologists, chemists, and others, were locked up for just denying uh, some of the narrative of the Second World War as told by the victors. And so uh, right now you see German uh, government going out of their way to lock up people, even great-grandmothers like uh, Ursula uh, Havelbrick, and uh, for simply not believing the narrative, the propaganda. And those Germans who are not full of self-loathing are too afraid to speak up lest the occupying governments of Germany, Austria, throw them in jail. And many Germans today um, would prefer to be raped or stabbed than called a Nazi, uh, which just shows you how uh, Stockholm Syndrome, gaslighting and guilt manipulation work. And uh, there are pictures here of German soccer teams, uh, national soccer teams, forced to visit Soviet-built fantasy lands at Auschwitz, which my friends in Poland say uh, most of what is shown to the uh, people today was actually built by the Soviets after the, the war, and that more Germans and civilians and Polish people died in Auschwitz than Jews uh, because the communists continued to operate Auschwitz as a concentration camp for nine years after the Second World War, often ignored. And yet Germany is not allowed to respect and commemorate their own dead, the mutilated, displaced, and the raped of Germany. And so uh, there's an inscription to this emotionally powerful memorial to the 40,000 victims of the Hamburg firebombing, Operation Gomorrah, where the Germans actually blame themselves. On the night of the 29th of July, persons perished in this air raid shelter in the bombing raid. Remember these dead, never again fascism. Well, um, who killed these people? Um, but they, they try to ban themselves. Now, why have countries banned Holocaust denial, asks MS King. Truth is its own defense. Truth does not require laws to protect it. Only lies do. The fact that so many countries now ban the practice of Holocaust denial or even questioning it is evidence that something is not right about the official story. And so there are learned uh, scholars who have been described as thought criminals, and pictures are given of Robert Furison of France, who's beaten by Jewish terrorists and arrested after being beaten uh, as though he was the culprit. The author, David Irving, uh, arrested in Austria and uh, vilified in Britain around the world uh, for doing primary research. And the author, Ernst Zundel from Canada, deported from Canada to Germany where he was arrested and imprisoned. 
And then people who served in the Waffen-SS uh, in their 90s, still being hunted and arrested and deported to Germany or Israel to face trials over what Emma's King says were imaginary crimes, because you take people like John Demjanuk and uh, Johann Bayer, both deported from America, died in captivity, and there's no evidence that they actually did any crime at all. Waffen-SS General Leon de Grella from Belgium, a volunteer from Belgium, who we've done a program on, uh, the author of The Eastern Front. After 1945, de says Hitler was accused of every cruelty, but it was not in his nature to be cruel. He loved children. It was an entirely natural thing for him to stop his car and share his food with a young cyclist along the road. Once he gave his raincoat to a derelict plodding in the rain. At midnight, he'd interrupt his work and prepare the food for his dog, Blondie. He could not bear to eat meat because it meant the death of an animal. He refused to have so much as a rabbit or a trout sacrificed to provide his food. He would only allow eggs on his table because egg laying meant the hen had been spared rather than killed. And so Leon de Grella says, in his personal context with Adolf Hitler, he did not perceive him as a cruel person, but as a vegetarian who was concerned for all of life. And again, this doesn't fit with the narrative, does it? So after having received what he called a generous grant from the New York-based Council on Foreign Relations, the American newspaper hack and former CBS mouthpiece William Shira published what was called the definitive and comprehensive history of World War II, the rise and fall of the Third Reich. And in the book's opening acknowledgments, Shira thanks the Council on Foreign Relations, whose globalist members were the very ones who engineered the war in the first place, for the funding for producing this book. So Shara's rise and fall is heavy on empty verbiage and page counts, 1,245 pages, but light on facts, weaving truths with half-truths and outward lies while sprinkling in a few seemingly objective, even pro-German nuggets of truth here and there, Shara skillfully painted a deceptive facade, one which any reader of the bad war would be able to crack open. And the Jewish publishing giants Simon & Schuster published the book, and the Jewish press hyped it to the stars, and Shara became wealthy beyond his wildest dreams. And this putrid package of propaganda, to quote from Emma's King, remains the go-to book for those who think they know anything about the Second World War, which turns out to be actually more like propaganda. And so the closing statement of the book is, World War II or the Good War, as modern court historians refer to it, is the gift that keeps on giving, giving us problems, that is. The tragedy and its aftermath grant humanity to this day and will continue to well into the foreseeable future. One of the aftermaths of World War II came the Cold War, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, the arms race, the nuclear arms race, the mutually assured destruction, the wars and ongoing problems in the Middle East, the financial schemes and distress caused by the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank, the framework of tyrannical and corrupt European Union, and so many other problems of the modern world. The bad war was a complete disaster for the force of civilization, stability, virtue, culture, independent nationalism of blood-related kinfolk. But it was a total triumph for the overlapping dark forces of globalism, debt-based crony capitalism, world communism, misguided liberalism, and Zionism. For them, it was a success. And behold what the victorious good guys brought in the days since the tragic war. Europe, and by extension America, Canada, Australia, and South Africa, no longer exist as peoples with a common history, heritage, or values. The globalists have reduced the beloved Europa, 
into a rootless, cultureless, godless, genderless, alienated, infertile, pornographic, multicultural, homosexual mismatch of medically, uh, mentally medicated tax and debt slaves. The true European essence, which was once rooted in Athens and Rome and Florence and Paris and London, Madrid and Dresden, and grand historical personages such as Plato, Aristotle, Pericles, Jesus, Marcus Aurelius, Charlemagne, Mozart, Kant, Dante, Shakespeare, Jefferson, and all vital institutions like family and folk and farm, community, church, civic groups, is if not totally gone with the wind in the process of coming off its moorings. Collectively, the peoples of the West are no longer even peoples defined by common cultures, traditions, bloodlines, and set of eternal values. We are now economies defined solely by the gross domestic product. As individuals, we are no longer persons defined by our virtues and intellects. We are now soulless machines, disposable, pill-popping, TV-addicted human resources and taxpayers defined solely by net worth and ability to consume, a euphemism for going into debt to buy things that we do not need. In a broader philosophical sense, that's what World War II was all about. It was a titanic struggle between the forces of classical Europa as well as historic Japan, and those are the culturally degenerate, predatory, capitalist, communist, hybrid, new world order in which we live in a, no, we exist in today. The true good guys lost. And I'm quoting all there from Emma's King. There's nothing that can be done to undo the evil folly of the past, he says, but by correcting the misinformation associated with it, we can perhaps at least avoid more such bloodbaths in the future. Make no mistake, this dirty game is still going on today and will one day pit culminatively in the World War III, pitting the New World Order against any disobedient sovereign power that doesn't play their game. The players may change, but the game does not. And that is the conclusion of The Bad War by M.S. King, The Truths Never Taught About World War II. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you very much, Peter. That was a fantastic study that you did over this nine-part series, the longest that we've ever tackled. Um, and yet, yeah, I think uh, it's so important to see how World War II has shaped our world today. And certainly listening to Peter go through this book, it's by no means only about World War II. Uh, it took us a while to get to World War II, if you remember, if you were hearing the earlier episodes, because yeah. it was all the build-up. And then we got into World War II, and now we've been doing the aftermath. So there's a, a lot of information there that, as Peter said, and as M.S. King said, has really shaped the world that we're in today. Uh, the evil world, I may add, that we are in today. Um, and, uh, yeah, what can you say about it? We've got two minutes left. Um, and, uh, well, yeah, go ahead. I should add that um, the last Prime Minister of Rhodesia, Ian Smith, who was a veteran of the Second World War, who fought all six years of the Second World War in the Royal Rhodesian Air Force, uh, shot down twice and uh, uh, part of his face is plastic surgery. I saw Ian Smith many a time over the last 20 years of his life um, for lunches, suppers, radio interviews and so on. And uh, he said to me, on reflection, he said, we were on the wrong side in the Second World War. He said, we thought we were fighting for Christian civilization, but in fact, we were fighting to advance the Soviet Union. He said, it would have been better if we had lost the war or if we had not been involved in the war at all, or he says, or well, even better, if we'd actually gone and helped an Eastern Front to defeat the Soviet Union, who's our real enemy. And the paradise I grew up in, Rhodesia, 
is today communist hellhole of Zimbabwe, directly as a result of the policies crafted in the Second World War betraying all Western civilization, not just in Europe, but around the world. And so as a missionary to persecute churches throughout Africa, I've got to deal with the aftermath and the casualties of these policies in trying to care for people where there's no more religious freedom, where they've been crushed and persecuted, but where there was complete religious freedom before the Second World War. So uh, in my personal experience and that of my father who fought in the Second World War, um, the good guys did not win. And the results of the Second World War have all been bad. And I'm very glad for Emma's King calling it by the name it should be called. It's not the good war. It is the bad war. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you so much, Peter. And before we go, can you please let the audience know where they can find your work and how they can contact you? My personal email is peter at frontline.org.za, peter at frontline.org.za. And our mission website, www.frontlinemissionsa.org, the SA standing for South Africa, so frontlinemissionsa.org, that's our website. Love to hear from you. Uh, anyone wants to contact me, peter at frontline.org.za, or find me on Facebook. We'll be glad to contact through social media too. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you for this opportunity. Uh, this means a lot to me. My parents went through the Second World War, and uh, uh, I know how it affected and traumatized them, and it's taken me a long time to unravel. And this book certainly helps putting together a whole of the other books that we've studied and spoken of over the years, whether from Patton or on Hess. And we're grateful that there's a one go-to introduction that people can take to try and deprogram from a lifetime of propaganda. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you so much, Peter. And folks, don't forget that there's a link to uh, the MS King's site, Mike King's site. And there's a great offer that I believe Peter has availed himself of, where you can get all of Mike King's books uh, on PDF. Uh, and uh, have a look at that, because that's one that I've highlighted for you. Uh, he's got a great introduction into World War II, and he writes on many other topics, uh, things like Planet Rothschild, you know, uh, things like different uh, topics are in their different books so um you know get them while you can you just don't know what's around the corner in this insane world that we're living in today so i want to thank peter so much not just for joining me today but for his hard work on this in-depth nine-part series i want to thank all of you for listening peter and i will be back with you at the same time next week i will of course be back with you tomorrow and until then folks have a wonderful day and bye for now